Well, we are in our Seven Churches of Revelation series. I've super enjoyed this series. I hope you have as well so far. I know we're like in week three of seven right now, but I'm really enjoying this. Uh, and so uh, we're going to just, just quickly, here's where we've been. Uh, so far, uh, we have been through these first two letters that Jesus writes to these churches uh, in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, the first church that we, that we talked about was Ephesus. And Ephesus, so Jesus' letter to Ephesus basically was this. You have been faithful. You have worked hard. You have persevered. You have done all the right things. But I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forgotten me. You have forgotten your first love. And so we, we talked that week about, have we forgotten do we need to, to remember what, what it was like when we first came to Christ? Do we need to repent and get back to that place and do the things that we did at first, like Jesus calls the church in Ephesus to? Last week, we looked at Smyrna. And in Smyrna, Jesus basically says this, Look, I see you. I see what you're going through. I see the pain that you've been through. I see the afflictions that you've been through. I see the poverty that you are in, but you are rich. You are not rich in money, but you are rich because you have me. You are rich because you have me and you have faith in me. And even though the world that you live in, even though the culture you might live in is ostracizing you and pushing you out and persecuting you, you are rich. And if you are faithful, you will get life. Not just any life, eternal life with me. This is what Jesus says to that church. And, it was, and really, I asked you this question. This was the question to think about last week. If you lost everything, would Jesus be enough? If you lost everything, would Jesus be enough? The people in Smyrna answered that with a yes. What is your answer? This week, we're going to keep going, and we're going to look at the church in Pergamum. Pergamum is in, Ephesian, or, <laughs> Pergamum is in Revelation chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 12. If you want to go there, if you're in our pew Bibles on page 1063, uh, uh, Pergamum is, I'll give you a little bit of background on here, but I just want to remind you of what we've been talking about here. Jesus has given this vision to John, the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he's writing Revelation. John has a vision from God while he is exiled on the island of Patmos. And this is part of his vision. The beginning part of his vision is these letters to these seven churches. Now, oftentimes we think of Revelation, we think of, we think of end times. We think of destruction. We think of like apocalyptic type literature. These letters are not necessarily about the end times. These letters are about right now. Right now. In view of what is going to happen, these letters affect us in the right now. So over this series, you will not hear me talk about uh, end times. You are not going to hear me talk about uh, when Jesus is coming back. It's just not going to happen. We're going to talk about the right now. With these churches, these seven churches, how can we take what Jesus is saying to these seven churches and apply them here in 2019 in Fresno, California. So, this week, the church in Pergamum, Ephesians, or <laughs> I keep saying Ephesians, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Uh, but before we read, I just want to give you a little history on Pergamum. 
Pergamum was obviously, this is week three, they're the third, per, third people on this, uh, on this mailing route that Jesus sends John on. Uh, we've kind of headed north from here. So we've gone from Ephesus north to Smyrna, north again now to Pergamum. This is where we are. We're in north. It is a huge city. The city, Pergamum itself, means uh, citadel or high place, right? They had this this huge amphitheater. It was on a hill. It overlooked the city. And when I say huge, I mean huge. There was seating for 10,000 people in this amphitheater. Now, you have to remember, this is a time with no microphones, no anything. This is 10,000 people in this amphitheater. It's literally just on the side of this hill overlooking the city. Actually, in, in most theaters, they would have, uh, most amphitheaters, they would have kind of like a, a backdrop uh, in, in behind the players, behind the actors. In this one, it was removable because the view behind the theater was so good. Right? There, was, there was a huge city. There was, uh, there, was, there was a lot of pagan worship there, though. There were probably seven or eight uh, pagan temples there. Uh, when you see this city from far away, it's just extravagant. Again, it's one of the most wealthy cities in the area. And to an extent, it's, it's similar to last week's city of Smyrna. Right, it was a wealthy city, but the church there is being persecuted. The church there, you can imagine, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but there is so much pagan worship in this city that if you are a Christian, you are definitely not fitting in. And you are, you are ostracized, you are persecuted because you are not fitting in. So there was a couple of things that this city was known for. Here's the first thing they were known for. They were known as ground zero for imperial worship. The worship of the emperor. This is where that started. This is where that started to spread from. This is the city where, where the worship of the emperor kind of started. Now, we talked last week about Smyrna being a friend of Rome, being an ally of Rome. You can up that when we talk about Pergamum. <clears throat> Pergamum is even more so, probably, an ally of Rome. It's even more so. Uh, they, they worship, see, Smyrna worshiped Rome. There was a temple to the goddess Roma, the god of Rome. This one, there was a temple literally to the emperor of Rome. See, the Caesar at the time believed that he was, and he, he made these claims, tell me if they're familiar, that he was fully man and fully God. And that if you came to him, he could offer you forgiveness, eternal life, and justice. And so they, they built this temple there to go and to worship the Caesar, to worship the emperor. And they would come and they would make this declaration that Caesar is Lord. This is, this is ground zero here for imperial worship. The second thing it was known for is this was kind of a, kind of a hotbed for, for a lot of other religions. Right? It was actually known as the, the religious capital of the province of Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. Right, this was the, the religious capital. People from all over. They had all kinds of worship, all kinds of languages, all kinds of gods. There was actually different categories of gods. Right? There, were, there were the household gods that you would pray to. You could, you could pray to your ancestors. There were figurines that you could have that you could pray to. Uh, there, were, uh, there were a lot of these gods that you could just pray to any of them. Right? These are the household gods. There were occupational gods. There was a god for every job that was there. If you were a carpenter, there was a carpentry god. And you would pray to this carpentry god to, to make you better at carpentry. To bless your saw and to bless your 
hammer, that the things that you made would be good and would sell. Right? This, they had occupational gods, and they had patron gods. Now, patron gods were when a city would say, this god is going to be our god. As a city, we are going to worship this one. We're going we're gonna to worship this God as a city. This is going to be our, our patron, kind of like a patron saint. This is going to be our patron God for this city. And so we would build temples to this God, and we would worship this God. There's actually, uh, this one actually plays into the letter a little bit, but there's an example of this in Acts chapter 19. You don't have to go there. I'll just tell you about it. Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul is teaching and preaching in Ephesus, interestingly, a city that we've already talked about on this route. He's preaching there, and he's preaching, he's obviously preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith alone. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that you can have forgiveness and salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's preaching this, right? And, and there ends up being a riot in Ephesus, in, in Acts chapter 19, there's a guy named Demetrius who's a silversmith, and, and he makes his living making these figurines for people to worship, these figurines of the Ephesian god Artemis, their patron god in Ephesus. So Paul comes in, and he rocks the boat a little bit. Now, hey, this Artemis god is not God. The only God, the only true God is our God. God and Jesus Christ is who you can be saved by, who can save you through his blood. And so Paul comes in preaching this gospel, and Demetrius is like, This is bad for business. And so he begins to, to talk to the other silversmiths and say, Look, we can't have this anymore. These, this, is, this is not only bad for business, but this is bad for our city, right? Because what Paul is doing is he is, he is kind of downgrading this god Artemis to where she is not even a god anymore. And if she's not a god, then he is basically making this temple and this worship obsolete. We are, we are out of luck at this point. And so he begins to start this, this riot in the city, and the people in the city just... Just follow him kind of blindly. I think even one of these verses, in verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Like They just start this riot saying, hey, we need to worship Artemis, not this guy. We need to worship, we need to worship the, the city god and not this god that Paul and his buddies are talking about. And so he, he kind of starts this riot and people join in. They don't even know why they're there. They just hear Artemis and they're like, yes, why? Because that is their patron god. So most cities had one patron god. Pergamum, being Pergamum, had four. They, they didn't, one was not enough. They wanted four gods, and so they worshipped four. They worshipped Zeus. We've heard of Zeus. Zeus is the god of all the gods. He's the father of all the gods. They worshipped Zeus. They had a temple to Zeus. It was on kind of the highest point of the city. <clears throat> Actually, a pretty, cool, uh, a pretty cool altar there for him. Actually... You can find that altar. It's actually in a museum in Berlin. The people who, who dug it up actually moved it to Berlin. It's huge. It's huge. Google it. I'll tell you that. All right. Second god they had was Athena, the goddess of wisdom. They would worship and they had a temple to Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Interestingly enough, when they dug up this, this, uh, this temple to Athena, they found a library next door with over 200,000 scrolls in it which I think is 
you're worshiping the God of wisdom, that makes sense. There would be a library with a lot of scrolls in them. They, had, they worshipped the god Asclepius, which is the god of healing. And he just had a, just a crazy temple with some really shady stuff that went on inside uh, for healing. But this is, this is the god Asclepius. And the last one they worshipped was Dionysus. He is the Roman god Bacchus. He is the, the god of the, the grape harvest, the god of wine. He is the, the god of fertility and ecstasy. This is the god that they worship. Now his his worship was, was crazy. They just basically had these giant parties where you could have all the wine and all the food and all the sex that you wanted. That was basically worship of Dionysus. All right, this is, this is the, the city here, and, and you got to know that there are not just these four patron gods, but there are other gods that individuals worship at home, and there are other gods that people worship for their jobs. So you gotta, you got to see here, there are all kinds of jobs, all kinds of gods fighting for people's attention in this city. So you can see that this, this city is really in a battle for truth. Right, they're in a battle for the minds of everyone in this city because there is, there's really no absolute truth here. Which God is the right God to worship? Well, let's worship all of them. Right? Which, which, which one is right? Which one is wrong? Which one should I worship? Which one... It's a battle for truth. It's a battle for the mind. There is no absolute truth in this city. Kind of sounds a little familiar. I mean, even today, if you claim something as absolute truth, people look at you with skepticism at best. This city is in a battle for truth. And this is the, the city that Jesus writes to this church. He writes to this church in Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2. We're finally there. Let's read this. I'll unpack it as we go. <clears throat> Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I'm going to stop right there. We're going to stop probably verse by verse here and just go through this. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This word, sword, I learned this week, is pretty fascinating. Sword is used 36 times in the New Testament. John uses it seven. One in the Gospel of John, one in, uh, maybe it's First John actually, and then one in, in six in Revelation. The normal word that people use when they use the word for sword was makaira. And this sword was kind of a small it was a small sword. It was a big knife. It was used for hunting and, and kind of gathering things from the animals that were killed. John doesn't use that word. When John talks about this sword, and again, he, he even talks about it in verse 16 in, in chapter 1. In his, right hand, or the, held, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. The sword that he's using here is not kind of this small sword. He's using a word called rumphaya, which is like a broad sword. It is a big, heavy sword. It is, a, it is a giant sword that would definitely overpower one of these small makairas that are normally talked about. And so what is what he's talking about here is there was a, there was a phrase back then that the Caesar had the authority of the sword. He had the power of the sword. Caesar, and that word, Machaira, he had the power of the sword. He had the power to give life, and he had the power to take life with this sword. 
He had the power to save life. He had the power to take a life with this sword. And so here we have Jesus into this into this city where there is worship of this emperor, of this Caesar, with the power of the sword. And he says, here's who's talking to you. I am the one. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged Ramphaya. I've got the big dog sword. I'm the one with the authority. And into this city, out from this authority, he keeps going, I see you. There's this I see you moment in verse 15. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to to death in your city where Satan lives. We don't know who Antipas is. We haven't heard of him before. We don't know him before or after. We just know he lived and died in this city, probably for his faith in Jesus. But here, just this, he says it twice, where I know where you live. You live where Satan has his throne. You live where Satan lives. What is he talking about? I mean, you could probably take your pick. Is he talking about the temple up on the hill of Zeus? Is he talking about the temple of Dionysus? Or is he talking about the temple of Athena? Or is he talking about any of the other temples that are in town? The temple to the Caesar? Is he talking about that temple? Yeah, probably. Look, you have all these different faiths. You have all these different places. And he says, I know where you live. I know you live where Satan has his throne. I know you live where Satan lives. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. All right, here's, there's, this is kind of following the, the design of these letters. Jesus says, this is who's writing. I want to encourage you, but, but I'm writing to you for a reason. I want to encourage you, but I have some things against you. Here we go. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. If you want to know more about this story of Balaam and Balak, it's in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 23 and on. Basically what happens is the Israelites begin to do things in Numbers and and apparently in this city that look eerily similar to emperor worship. They would eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. They They would indulge in some things that were definitely not worship to God. They would, they would do some of this stuff. They were imperial practices. Verse 15, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about the Nicolaitans just a little bit in, in, in the first one, in the church to Ephesus, in the letter to Ephesus. And these Nicolaitans likely were a group of Gnostics. And, they, and basically, here's what that means. These, these people were teaching that your life could be separated. That as long as you held to the faith and the knowledge that you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, your life could live, be lived however it wants to be lived. Because Jesus cares about your soul and not your body. And so they could go on and do whatever they wanted to do in their lives. They could live however they wanted to live. They could, they could go for some of these practices of the other gods. They could go to, to some of the parties of Dionysus. They could go to wherever they wanted to go because they knew that God had their soul and that was good enough. And so they didn't really care how they lived. And that's, that's kind of what these Nicolaitans were, were preaching. Jesus is saying, look, I have this against you. 
You're letting too many things in. You're letting things be truth to you that are not true. This faith that you have, and obviously, I mean, they, you did not renounce your faith in me. He is giving this them, them that encouragement in verse 13. You didn't renounce your faith in me, but look, here's what, here's what I have against you. Your faith is not really complete. Look at how you're living. You're letting these other influences in. You're letting all this other stuff into your life that is not true. I mean, they've basically created a theology where, where they, they know Jesus and they claim Jesus, but, but they can live indulgent lives. And because of because grace, right? That's kind of just what you have to say, because grace. If God is grace, then I can live however I want, and God's grace is always going to be there. Right? Even Paul, in one of his letters, says, hey, what should, I, what should we do then? Should we, should we sin all the more so that grace may become more? No. No, we don't do that. That is not the Christian life. That is not how we live. But that's how these people are living. And they've kind of created this theology where they can, they can claim Jesus in one hand and live their life another way on the other. Because it's compartmentalized. It's separate. I mean, we forget sometimes that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And the Bible really doesn't give us any room to claim him and live otherwise. I mean, John himself, in, in the book of 1 John, in the beginning of 1 John, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Right, if you claim Jesus but don't live it out, you're lying. Your life is, is lying. You're not living out the truth. And so what does he say to do? Verse 16, repent. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Once again, this sword is the sword of authority. This is the big sword. It's interesting, in verse 12, this sword is kind of a, there's a good thing. Right? This is the sword that saves. This is the sword of Truth, this is, this is a good sword. In verse 16, this is now a sword of, of destruction. I, I just I find that interesting. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We find sword imagery all throughout the New Testament, even the Old Psalm. In Hebrews, we see the... the the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. We see in Ephesians that the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon we have in the armor of God is the word of God. And here we have, we have this imagery here. That Jesus is coming back with this sword. He's coming back with his, with his word. He's coming back with truth. In a world where truth is not absolute, Jesus is coming back with his word, with his truth. Saying, repent. And then in verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone 
with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the one who is victorious, you get three things. You get the hidden manna. Now, if you think about manna, we know manna from the the Israelites coming out of Egypt and being in the wilderness and God providing the manna, the bread of life for them in the wilderness, in the desert. It's this imagery. If you are victorious, I will give you the hidden manna. I will, I've got you. I will take care of you. Not only do you get the hidden manna, you get a white stone. Now what in the world does that mean, right? What are, what are, what are we talking about here, Pastor? What are we talking about this white stone for? Well, there's, there's a few things that a white stone was used for, and I just want to tell you all of them, if you take it in this context, are amazing. Here's, here's a few things that a white stone meant in this context that he was writing to. <clears throat> if you were on a jury and it was time to proclaim the verdict, you were given a black stone and a white stone. And if you were innocent, you'd get the white stone. If you were a slave and you were set free, you know what you were given? You were given a white stone. If you were going to somewhere that you needed access to, a ticket, you know what you were given? You were given a white stone. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're, if you're victorious, not only do you get this manna, not only do you get to hear just, I've got you. I will take care of you. You are given freedom. You are given access. And you are given a new name, the third thing. You are given a new name. Here's, here's what would happen in these cities that I didn't really talk about in Smyrna. Smyrna was something similar, but in Pergamum. If you were being persecuted like the church was persecuted, your name would be removed from the city rolls. And here's Jesus saying, if you're victorious, you get the manna. I'm going to take care of you. All your needs will be met. You'll get freedom and access. This white stone, that's what this white stone symbolizes. You'll get freedom. You'll get access to me. You'll get, and you get a new name. I know you've been persecuted. I know you've been removed. I know all of that, but I give you a new name. It's kind of shades to, to Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. This is, this, is what they, this is what they get for being victorious. He's saying, look, look, there is, there are, I know where you live. I see you. I know where you live. You live in a place where Satan lives, where Satan has his throne. You live in a place where there is worship to so many things. But, and you've let it in a little bit. This is what I have against you. You've kind of let it in. You've let this, this, this truth, quote unquote truth, come into your life, and it's affected how you relate to me. It's affected your faith. This is what I have against you. You've listened to, the, to people like Balaam. You've listened to people like the Nicolaitans, but, but look at what you need to do. You need to repent. 
You need to repent, which means what? Turn around, go do the opposite thing. You need to come back to where truth lies. You need to claim it. You need to live it. Here's the challenge that Jesus provides to this church. You can't claim Jesus and live like you don't. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't work. And I think we'll see in a letter later on that if you're going to live like you don't, then Jesus would rather you not even claim that you are. You cannot have it both ways. If you claim Christ, live like you believe it. If you claim the name of Christ and say, I am a follower of Christ, I, I, I claim him and, and we need to live like that is the case. You can't have it both ways. And that's my challenge to you this week. Have you let in some things that are not truth? Have you let in some things that are not gospel? I mean, let's, let's, let's cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's live like we believe it. And if you are not, then I encourage you to do the same thing that Jesus is encouraging this church in Pergamum to do. Repent. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Claim the truth and live the truth. Let the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ be your guide. Let it be what directs you. Let it be what leads you. Let it be what guides your life. If you claim Jesus Christ, live like it. That's what this church in Pergamum is hearing from Jesus. And I think it's a relevant message today in 2019 in Fresno, California. If we claim Jesus Christ, let's live like it. And if you're not going to live like it, then stop claiming it. I think we have a, a duty as Christians to not mislead people. There are many people in our world who have been turned off to the faith, turned off to Christ by people who claim Christ but don't live like it. They live however they want during the week and then they go to church on the weekends and they feel like they're good. It's a bad witness. It turns people away. If we're going to claim him, let's live it. My prayer is that our church is a church that lives what we say we believe in every aspect. I want you to pray about that this week. Is there something that I've let in? Is there something that I've, that I've let in between this, this full life that I claim to live? Am I claiming something that I'm not living? And if so, I repent.
pray and seek God first. First week we talked about forgetting your first love, going back and doing those things you did at first. Right, last week we talked about is, is Jesus enough? This week that kind of gets put into action because if Jesus is enough then these things that are enticing me over here to live this way even though I claim Christ don't mean anything. And I'm going to live the way that Christ calls me to live.